Queen's Health Outreach is a student-run, registered charity based on the campus at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Our goal is to facilitate needs-based, peer-to-peer health discussions on a local, national, and international scale. Our mandate focuses on the establishment of health education initiatives, collaborating with communities in Kingston, Belize, Guyana, and Northern Canada to work towards sustainable opportunities for youth engagement, leadership, and health conversations. This podcast is for those who are interested in health, global health, global development, ethical engagement, and education. QHO On Air will give you insight into what types of discussion our organization has on a regular basis. Join us and our special guests bi-weekly as we chat about discussions surrounding topics of mental, sexual, and physical health. We would like to thank the CRFC 101.9 FM and the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences for this collaboration. Additionally, we would like to acknowledge that Queen's is situated on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. We are so grateful to be able to live, learn, and work on these lands. Welcome everyone. This is our first episode of QH on Air. My name is Rosie. I'm your first uh, host and I'm the PR director this year and I'm super excited for our first guest. We have the co-directors of Queen's Health Outreach. So we're just going to start off. I'd like you guys to just tell us your name, your program, your, where you're from, um, and a little bit about yourself. So I'm Georgia. Uh, I am, as Rosie said, I'm one of two co-directors this year. I am in fourth year. I am in life sciences and I have a minor in global development studies. This is my third year on QHO. I started as a Guyana peer educator two years ago when I was in second year and then I was a Guyana uh, initiative director last year. So it's been a long haul. Uh, I'm originally from Calgary, Alberta, so I love everything to do with the outdoors, hiking, things like that. So I'm Annalise, and I'm the other um, general co-director of QHO this year. Um, I'm in fourth year, and I'm a biology major and a global development minor as well. I'm actually from Niagara on the Lake, Ontario, which is um, a small town just kind of south of Toronto. And then for a little bit about myself, a lot of my life right now is school and QHO, which I don't mind. Um, but in my free time, I really enjoy um, hanging out with my friends. I started out with QHO actually when I was in my first year at Queen's and I was PR intern that year and I got to kind of gain a lot of insight into what QHO does and the work they do. And then in my second year of Queen's, I decided to apply to be a peer educator and I um, was a part of the Northern Initiative. Um, So I went to the location of Fort Providence with my lovely teaching partner. And then after that, I was on QHO again in third year and I was PR coordinator. And then from there, I'm now one of the general co-directors. So that's kind of like my QHO journey summed up. Awesome. Um, So what first drew you guys into QHO and why did you first apply? And then also, why did you stay with it? And what, you know, what has made you stay and what do you love so much about it? I first got involved with QHO because I was in... I was really interested in topics about global development, but I didn't know a ton about it. I was in second year, and I was also really passionate about health and education. So when I first learned about QHO, I thought it would be a perfect opportunity to sort of expand my horizons, help give back to a local or international community, and really make some good connections for my future years as well. I think I stayed with QHO because I found that my The QHO is a very unique organization. It's very different than a lot of organizations that do international volunteering and and local volunteering and run health initiatives. 
um, and that our training process is longer, we do more fundraising, we put a lot of our time and energy into this NGO as university students. So I think staying on it has allowed me to experience a lot of different aspects of a registered charity while I'm still pretty young. So I moved from just being a volunteer to being in charge of six peer educators last year and now being you know, co-in charge of the whole organization. So it's it's been a challenging and enlightening experience for sure. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. Um, for me, I definitely first joined QHO. I had heard about it before, actually, when I was in high school and, like, coming to Queens. And then I saw, like, the QHO booth at Queens in the Park, and I got some information. And I was just, like, applying. Honestly, I was one of those people that just applied to, like, all the clubs. Um, so I ended up applying to QHO, um, and I wanted, like I said before, I wanted an intern role just to kind of get a feel for it. I was always, like, kind of interested, or I was always pretty interested in the peer educator role, um, just because, um, I was, my background is a competitive, I was a competitive figure skater in high school, and, um, a lot of that, the volunteer work I did associated with that was, um, working with, like, youth in the community, um, kind of teaching, essentially, um, like can skate learn to skate programs at my local skating club so I always really like had an appreciation for like mentorship and um, like giving back in that sense of there were older girls who were um, like teaching me how to skate when I was that age then so I always really liked um, having playing that role in like the lives of other people um, so that's why the peer educator role really appealed to me but I decided okay gonna go with the intern role so I did that and I just like absolutely loved my experience in first year, like being on QHO unquestionably like changed the trajectory of not only my degree, I added on my devs minor after being on QHO and learning more about devs topics, um, but also just QHO compared to the other clubs I was on, there was just like such a sense of community that made me so excited to go to our like executive meetings and QHO events and all these things. Um, so I knew I was going to stick with it. Um, and then I guess what has also kept coming back, kept me coming back to the club is just the ability, like the sense of self-critical awareness that everyone on QHO has. <laughs> With my academic background as like a devs minor, learning more about global development topics and ethical engagement and these types of things, the values of QHO just really aligned with my own personal values. Um, and I think that this is so important just to recognize that QHO understands its positionality and I think a really unique sense that's honestly really impressive for being a student-run organization and that just like kept me coming back it's just ultimately because I believe in QHO's mission principles values quite passionately so that is probably what just like kept me coming back year after year <laughs> another aspect of QHO that like also now that I think of it has kept me coming back is just the aspect of like mutual learning I always say this but in every position I've held on QHO I've learned from the people around me, whether that be like my director when I was an intern who kind of mentored me um, and my role on QHO and, or when I was a peer educator, my other peer educators, my teaching partner, the individuals in the community who I had the privilege of interacting with. And then again, on exec, other executive team members, we all just like learn from each other and we all have like this goal to make QHO better and more effective. And I think that's so special. Yeah, that's perfect. That's a great way to say it. <laughs> um, so the next question is, where did you both go on initiative? And from that, what was your biggest learned lesson? So I went on initiative uh, to Guyana. 
but more specifically Georgetown, which is the capital of Guyana. So Guyana is one of our initiative locations. It's uh, it's a part of South America, the landmass, but is uh, like politically and economically considered part of the Caribbean. And I think my biggest learned lesson from that is how how like different populations and different cultures around the world still have the same core values of wanting youth to succeed and flourish under different economic conditions, different social conditions, anything like that. So I think I learned that although Guyana has a very different culture to Canada, that we're able to appreciate both and understand the differences in both. And that doesn't make like one culture or one country or one population group of people better than the other, but really completely on the contrary, that like cross-cultural learning is such an important aspect of everybody's life these days because we live in a globalized world and we're constantly interacting with people from different cultures even in Canada um, as we become a more multicultural society. So I think learning that has helped me really go through my everyday life um, trying to be more considerate of people's backgrounds, their different beliefs and different situations they come from. So yeah. So for me, I went on an initiative in Fort Providence in the Northwest Territories, um, which is a Dene First Nations community about three or so hours by driving away from Yellowknife. Um, and it's along the Mackenzie River. Um, for the biggest, it's hard to choose like one yeah. lesson yeah. from all, all the things that went on on initiative that kind of stuck out for me because I did learn so much about myself about my academic goals about my career goals about um interacting with other communities indigenous affairs in Canada all these things um I would say kind of along the lines of what Georgia said one of my biggest takeaways was to kind of put it bluntly just because we perceive one thing correctly based on our background that doesn't mean that that's the only way things can be done. I think it really gave me a lot of insight into my own positionality and how that affects the decisions and actions I make in my everyday life. And also it allowed me to have this like forum to learn how to kind of adapt that um, to understand even when we think of like, for instance, health, like there are so many different notions of health that are important and health means different things to different people. And just kind of, um, learning how to like combine all those things and really talk about health from like a holistic set. Yeah, I would definitely second that. Like health is not just exercising a couple times a week or, you know, the absence of disease. Something we really focus on in Guyana is mental health because that was a need that was identified by the communities that we work with. Um, in that there's so many different things that go into mental health rather other than, you know, depression or anxiety or things like that. Those are major aspects of it, but mental health also encompasses, you know, our friends with our, you know, our friends, our family, our relationships with our teachers, our peers, and how we move and interact with those around us. For sure. Yeah, I mean, I can even expand upon what, like, Georgia said in a northern context. For instance, um, an Indigenous worldview of health is quite different from a southern like westernized worldview of health so even when we were looking at lessons like nutrition and things like that that maybe myself and my teaching partner based on our positionality didn't have the best understanding on or our notion or our perceived 
our perception of what that was wouldn't be the most effective way to like discuss these health topics with the youth in the community. We went to like community members and talked to them and had them like they were more than happy often to give us resources to help us talk about this topic more effectively. Uh, so I would like you guys to kind of share with people why you think everyone else or people should apply and join QHO. Um, you kind of did talk a little bit about why QHO is different from other organizations on campus, but um, why should people join? I think people should join QHO because I think it, it's an organization that allows for you to get to grow so much with and through this organization. Um, and sort of going off what Annalise said about like our positionality and working with the different communities and, and stuff like that, I think it makes you aware of those sort of things. And we have a lot of science students um, and things like that who are really interested in health but don't necessarily understand the social parts of health and things like that. So I think it does allow for a lot of personal growth and you get a lot of knowledge by being a part of it. But also like you learn to be critical of your positionality in the world, your privilege, um, your ability to be on part of an organization like this, things like that, that like almost doesn't let you look at the world the same, um, sometimes in a negative light, sometimes in a positive one. There's definitely like challenges that have come with my time on the organization. And sometimes it's so hard. To, <laughs> sometimes you think critically about everything and then, you know, it yeah. seems all sad or but there's nothing we can do, but there is. And QHO is not gonna, you know, we're not saving people's lives. We're not like doing anything like that. It's more an experience that we hope will end up with some sort of mutual learning with us yeah. and benefit that the communities we work with. Um, yeah, that was a lot. Um. <laughs> yeah, I would say, I would say ditto to what Georgia said, honestly. Um, I think just to like kind of go off of that, there are so many different, um, or people with so many different interests can find something about QHO that connects with those interests. If you're interested in, you know, maybe NGO management, QHO is such a good opportunity to gain experience as a student in like a real functioning NGO. Um, if you're interested in global development, we talk about so much about like things like volunteerism, sustainability, those kind of topics that come up a lot in those, that kind of area or field of research. If you're interested in health, we are focusing on like global health. Um, I just think that a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds can find value in being a part of QHO. For kind of a more fun one next, did you guys have a favorite aspect of health? Um, whether it be in your everyday lives or whether it was, you know, having discussions on initiative. Um, yeah, just. I can talk about my favorite. My favorite um, lesson to teach on initiative was always self-esteem. Um, I just love that topic so much. It's a really good topic. I felt like to kind of um, get to know the youth in the community when you were teaching it to them. I especially loved teaching that topic to kind of like grade, like middle school age. Um, and a lot of the girls on initiative that I was able to connect with, I feel like they responded really well to that lesson. And I think it was just so relevant to their lives. And it was one of the lessons where we got a lot of engagement and input on them that was like truly conversation based. And it just like was such like, I feel like they really took something away from that lesson. So that was definitely my favorite topic to teach in like a multitude of classes. And I also think it's so important because that topic of self-esteem really does interact with so many different 
aspects of health or other health topics like physical health, nutrition, mental health, yeah. um, even yeah. sexual health all goes back to kind of self-esteem in a way. So I really love that topic. I try to think back. I think that so we had a lesson that we, we called the intro to mental health and looking back, it was probably my favorite, but doing it, I think we did it like 20 plus times because it was such an important lesson. We did it wow. with all of our classes um, and organizational partners and things like that. So yeah, in this lesson, we got to talk about like literally just like, what is mental health? I remember asking the question, what is mental health? And nobody has an answer to it because they don't, Mm-hmm. Like, I don't even know if, if I was, you know, in grade seven, eight, nine, somebody asked me what, what is mental health? I'd be like, what are you, like, what yeah. are you talking about? Or like, isn't that just like depression or like some, like a very limited view of it. Yeah. So I really like talking about that. And then we got to go into things like stigma and like, what is stigma? Um, it's something. Yeah. So like really important topics that. Yeah. For sure. I'm really doing. Yeah. Some fun activities with that too. Yeah, I definitely, I remember in one of my university courses um, for psychology, he explained, and this is when I was in second year of university, he explained mental illness, you know, is diagnosed in some people, but 100% of people have mental health. And well, exactly, mental health, yeah. Mental health goes up and, up and down with every, every single individual. We hope that through these lessons, they gain an understanding and can apply it to their everyday lives. Pretty much it, though. That's all of our questions. So thank you so much for letting me interview you. And I hope this gives everyone a good idea of who we are, what we stand for, and what's to come with the podcast. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having us. We're so excited to see where the podcast goes this year. Welcome, everyone, again. Here is our first guest. So this is Ron Shore. He is a father, coach, teacher, writer, and community organizer, and consultant to nonprofits and health sector. He has over 20 years of experience in community health, addictions, and resiliency. He earned a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy, a Master's in Public Administration with a concentration in Health Policy, and in a PhD in Progress at uh, School of Kinesiology and Health Studies at Queen's. Um, he worked for over 23 years, or about 23 years, in frontline harm reduction, community health, mental health, and addictions. Started as a prison outreach worker at the height of the AIDS epidemic, helped start a needle exchange program, then founded Street, Street Health Center, uh, a multidisciplinary community health center for people facing multiple barriers to health, including homelessness and addiction. He returned to school in 2017 to complete a PhD in psychedelic medicine with areas of research, including psilocybin, ayahuasca, and shamanism. So that's quite the introduction. Um, do you have anything there that we didn't include about you or if you want to talk about what you're up to this year, um, go ahead. Sure, that's a pretty lengthy intro, so I won't uh, add too, too much, but uh, I have taught uh, at Queens for the last 14 years and I've taught introduction to the study of drug and alcohol problems within the School of Kinesiology and Health Studies. So that's been a great experience because I enjoy teaching, uh, but it's also been wonderful to uh, stay connected with youth culture and the student demographic and learn more about kind of drug trends on campus. So I, I try to make my class kind of participatory so I can get a sense of what's going on for people in their lives. And then starting this fall, I started teaching at University of Ottawa and I teach on psychedelics policy uh, and harm reduction there. Awesome. That's 
So cool. Um, so just taking from some of the research in your past, what have you learned um, while doing research, while working in frontline that you wish everyone could know, like something you didn't know before yeah. and you wish people could know um, in the public? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's actually a really good question. Uh, I think the biggest misperception when it comes to anything drug related um, is how we assign the notion of drug effect. I think we're brought up to think that drugs create the effect. These molecules have these properties that can overtake us. And the reality is no matter how we analyze it, um, drug effect is always a combination of a number of factors. And it's something called the total drug effect. So I think the one thing, if anything, I, I hope I've been conveying for the last number of years is drugs themselves don't have the power. It's their relationship to you, your relationship to your sense of purpose and suffering in life, and then your place within larger culture. So total drug effect is a better concept. And for that, we need to look at the set of the individual, your own psychology, your needs, your traumas, your aspirations, and also your expectations. What do you think? drugs do? What do you think alcohol does? Uh, what do you think cannabis does? And then the, the notions of your culture, that, 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 what do you call that? The matrix of your culture and the beliefs that were brought up uh, around drugs. And that's been particularly interesting when you start looking at psychedelics, because um, with psychedelics, you have such a profound influence of the setting on the individual um, that it really does heighten that notion that for any of us, whether it's caffeine or alcohol uh, or, or cannabis, it's always a relationship of you the substance uh, and your society and your place in it. Um, and they don't by themselves have just one cause and effect. It's much more nuanced. And then you get into interesting things around social relationships and culture. So really drugs are a great mirror and the way we use substances tells us a lot about ourselves and our need. That's perfect. Thank you so much. Um, kind of related to that. So mm -hmm. if I were to say when you were working with people with addiction, um, mm -hmm. and especially in the front line, what have you learned when working with people in, in the front line specifically? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. So I, you know, I spent 23 years doing frontline um, harm reduction and then kind of program management within harm reduction. So I wasn't necessarily a frontline worker anymore, but all my programming was about harm reduction and working with people who were severely marginalized and multiple barriers to health. So at Street Health, for example, um, the folks we would generally work with were polysubstance addicted, meaning they had multiple addictions to multiple substances. And they almost always had, like most of us, um, and I don't like the us and them, so I'm trying to be careful of my language here. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the, the client group I would have worked with, there's also very strong concurrent mental health disorders. Mm -hmm. So substance use, um, dependence, uh, addiction rarely comes without something else like anxiety, depression, PTSD, right. largely because substance use, when it becomes problematic, is kind of a self-medication um, strategy to deal with the negative mental health symptoms we're feeling. So that's kind of why we begin to overuse substances. And then the whole pattern kind of comes in there. Right. But I think working in that community, and it was funny because at, at the time, um, I would always have my social contacts or peers in the community, not necessarily people who worked in the field, always ask me how I did the work. Like, didn't I find it really discouraging or difficult or traumatizing? And I, I never really did, to be honest. I think because I started when I was 20 years old. I dropped out of my third year here at Queens and, and got hired by the Kingston AIDS Project. So that was the beginning of the rest of my life. And I began doing prison outreach. Um, and at that point, really quickly realized a lot about our nation uh, and society because I, I, I worked with a lot of residential school uh, survivors in the prisons. 
Uh, and it was really clear to me that most of the, and I worked entirely with men. So most of the men I worked with in prisons were kind of born into prison in terms of social class, right. racialized communities and oppression, uh, injustices suffered by indigenous people uh, and just poverty. So I think for me working for 23 years for the street health community, it was a lesson in observing resilience, mm -hmm. uh, life and spirit um, and connectivity and community. Um, rarely, and it's funny because I, I worked for so long within that culture, I think I, I began to kind of prefer it over the dominant culture <laughs> because there's a lot more mutual aid within people who, right. who are also kind of oppressed. Uh, um, and struggling and I'm not trying to romanticize it because I mean the reality is I, I went to hundreds of funerals right. uh, and I think anyone who does work in that community inevitably ends up with a little bit of vicarious trauma so I you know I saw things that were pretty horrific right um, and I was with people at the end of their life and, and thought way too many people die young but just the the beauty of the human spirit um, the kindness that persevered even in the face wow. of horrendous trauma and abuse and just the resilience of life and, and people wow. being willing to help each other in particular communities that are don't have access to resources as much. They really do depend on helping each other. So I learned a lot about life. It was kind of like a, a, a wow. lesson in, yeah, in values. I love that. It's so amazing. And yeah. it doesn't uh, get recognized enough. Exactly. And that kind of transitions to my next question because I think while I took your course, it really changed my view of addiction and um, that I wanted to ask you why or how is it like viewed differently than other diseases? And I remember you talking about, um, we kind of, as humans, we're normally, we'll feel bad for someone who's diagnosed with cancer and yeah. we don't feel ba as bad for someone who um, yeah. is addicted to um, drugs or alcohol. And um, so I think I, if you wanted to just kind of go into why um, and like what aspects of, it that people are unaware of and kind yeah. of why people view it differently um if you yeah. don't mind yeah no that's that's kind of the crux of the matter um and i think for a lot of people it's a surprise to hear despite the fact that it's not new that that addiction is itself um uh classified within the human rights code uh as uh, a protected kind of medical condition meaning that were required to accommodate people if they have a, a medical disorder beyond their control, um, whether it's accessibility issues. But in the case of addiction, it goes under the radar that we don't recognize that from a human rights perspective, addiction itself is considered a disability. And I don't want to get into all the power and politics around disability and ability because that's a little bit outside of what we're talking about. But it just raises the issue of, of desert and blame um, and I think for most people, the single leading myth about addiction that we're force fed uh, is that people choose it. Right. Um, and I think that that's not to take away the element of autonomy or human agency or choice, because I fully believe in that, because that's really the only way people can, can stabilize themselves or get better or, or, yeah. uh, or heal. Um, but at the same time, if you look at the conditions that are known to increase the risk of, of lifelong substance dependence or addiction. Yeah. They're almost entirely dependent. They're almost entirely early childhood factors yeah. or early adolescent uh, factors. Yeah. So one of my favorite stats you've probably heard yeah. me say lots in class was 90% yeah. of daily smokers begin smoking in adolescence. Right. So and if I you look at an adolescent, the, the ACEs too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if you look at, you know, um, adolescents cannot legally vote. They're not entirely considered fully independent. Um, but 
so it's hard to assign and we look now even at the evolving brain i think the definition of youth now goes up to 24 so and and that's largely um a health candidate kind of cut off based on neurobiology of the developing brain so when is a young brain less susceptible and it's now past the age of 24. so if we realize that you have these conditions of susceptibility where people are not fully uh, developed for lack of better words it raises the issue of the community responsibility for that person so for me you know, when we would be working with street involved youth, um, generally people had a lot of empathy for like a six or seven or eight year old child who mm-hmm. was coming from an abusive home and maybe was displaying some behaviors, but that empathy really ended when people hit like 14, 15, 16. Right. And then you heard things like, oh, they should know better or they're just right. making stupid decisions. Right. So I think there's, as a society, we fail to understand the complexity of how decisions are made. You know, in terms of our behavioral choices are always rooted. And and that's why, thanks for bringing up the ACE study, because obviously you took my class as well. Uh, (laughs) The ACE study came out of uh, California and and it's called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. So this is kind of, this is kind of canon, canonical now in the field. People always talk about ACE study and public health um, discusses it more. And, And what it is, is it's a recognition that there's categories of early childhood trauma that condition your health outcomes for the rest of your life. And these are population-based studies. They're large cohorts. They were randomized and, and methodologically pretty sound. And what they found was that, you know, the, the greater your ACE score or, or the more traumas you had experienced as a child, the greater your likelihood of, uh, of a earlier death, but also uh, morbidities throughout your life, both around mental and physical health, whether it's asthma or diabetes or addiction. Um, and I think the one stat you'll probably remember from my class, which is that if you take someone with an ACE score of zero, meaning that you grow up without, you know, really any significant traumas and, and the ACE categories are things like sexual trauma, physical trauma, incarceration of an adult, mental health of a parent, yeah. separation or divorce. So most of us go through most some degree of these in our life and particularly right. kind of unaware. Of it. Yeah. yeah, unaware. And then you look at today with COVID and all the social dislocation, yeah. isolation, and there's yeah. different forms of trauma I think we're experiencing now. But mm-hmm. it's just to say, I mean, the stat I wanted to get to was if you had, um, if you had experienced all six categories yeah. uh, of adverse childhood experience compared to someone who'd experienced none, you were 4,600 times more likely to become an, in, an injection drug user. Yeah. So for me, that just statistically oh, yeah. significance is obvious and then it just erodes this notion that people are responsible for their mm-hmm. conditions so if someone is you know smoking crack cocaine or injecting methamphetamine you know as a society we tend to say it's their fault pull yourself up yeah. by your bootstraps we're not really going to help you we might provide some health programming but we've got it all wrong because really this is just these this is the mirror to society and the results of, of what happens earlier in lives for people and that's not to take away autonomy and drug use yeah. can be very much individual you know whether it's exploration or pleasure seeking or enhancement and so i'm not saying it's all pathological but when it comes to hardcore addiction and that's something that generally people don't want and even when you're in it Mm -hmm. if you like the drugs you still don't like the addiction side because it comes with a lot of suffering it's just to give it more context than to say it's someone's individual responsibility but that's the flaw in liberal capitalist society we're seen as these separate individuals and ecologically socially culturally that's just not the case but our policy models are flawed just like our economic model is flawed. Yeah. Sure. And I, I agree in the sense too that it's it's not necessarily saying that it's all pathological, but it's just acknowledging it and um, recognizing it is so important. And yeah. that stat alone, I, I've 
stuck with me and um, yeah. completely changed my mindset. So um, yeah, I wanted to kind of transition into why you believe the harm reduction measures are important and um, yeah. for community members. So you've done lots of work in yeah. um, needle exchange programs and um, the street health center. And um, why do you think that is important? because you're meeting people where they're at and you're doing things that actually are benefit to them mm -hmm. without judgment. And from a human rights perspective, you're, you're validating their choices and their autonomy and you're respecting their decisions, but you're also meeting them where they're at. And too many professionals wait in an office until people come to them. And it's just, it's that to me, that work is, is not as interesting and not as effective, but right. harm reduction really began. It was, harm reduction is really just common sense in a way. And, and medical care and clinical care has always been about reducing harm. So right. seatbelt laws, playground safety, that's all harm reduction. Yeah. But it began in the drug world by what's called a junkie bund or a union of addicts in the Netherlands around hepatitis B. And they started doing needle exchange. So it was a community taking control of the resources and creating options of safety for their own communities. And that's, that's something that's been lost in healthcare. We tend to think of it as services delivered by a professional to a kind of passive subject or passive object when really health is about activating and actualizing your own capacities and mobilizing resources. So harm reduction has a very beautiful origin. Um, the interesting thing for me now is when we're looking at, you know, we've had needle exchange, methadone, we have overdose prevention programs now, you have safe consumption sites, people can go and use in different sites in Kingston, Ottawa, Toronto, Montreal, most of the major cities have safe consumption sites. Mm -hmm. And still we have a fentanyl and opiate overdose epidemic that is worse every month and COVID has made it even more worse. And I think even locally, I think overdoses are up 40% in the time of COVID or before, and it's pretty horrific before. So for me, um, I'm tired of, of dancing around the notion of, of prohibition and decriminalization because there's, there's no, you can't tinker and improve this system and save lives without the blanket decriminalization of illicit substances right now. Fentanyl is simply too small and too par powerful of a molecule to control and keep from getting in. And then there's just, I mean, the, the market and all the economic drivers for the illegal trade and opiates are so strong. You're never gonna, it, the war on drugs has been a colossal failure. And it was never really about drugs. It was about incarcerating poor populations and racialized mm -hmm. communities. Yeah. But I think enough is enough. It's been 50 years, people yeah. are dying at a record rate. And now you have psychedelics rising to the front and people are realizing drugs aren't all bad, they can be healing. Right. So it's getting us to think differently about drugs and about healing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in the time of COVID when we're pressed for social resources and you have psychedelics rising as a medicine, cannabis has been legalized. I think you see magic mushrooms legalized within a year to two years, yeah. um, that it's time to for all of us to acknowledge that our drug policy is a failure and it's costing lives at a rate that has always been inexcusable, but it's, it's just, it's, it's got to be time now to end prohibition, decriminalize all illicit drugs, legalize the ones that we can manage. So I think I'd like to hear more harm reduction discourse around that. It's the one regret when I was more active in on the conference circuit and harm reduction, I would talk about decriminalization, but I don't think I was strong enough. And I think the reality is now we, we cannot really do full harm reduction until we decriminalize substances because so many of the harms are just artificially created by the material conditions of prohibition. So people are using impure substances created by an illegal market where there's no quality assurance and they're, they're using unsafely because they're afraid of prosecution. But yeah. the reality is that the, the chief crown attorney for Canada in August sent a directive to all crown attorneys to no longer pursue drug charges for simple possession for people. So we're in a state of de facto decriminalization. You have a tolerated online trade of magic mushrooms now. 
you have had um, about a dozen people on Canada now. Is it, I think it's about a dozen. Don't quote me on that. There were six in August, and I think there've been more proofs since then, who've got legal access to magic mushrooms because they're terminally ill and they want access to the healing potential. So Health Canada proved that. Uh, and then you've had all the, I think all of the chiefs of police organizations have come out in favor of decriminalization or not pressing charges on people for simple possession. So all these things line up. I think we have de facto decriminalization. So yeah. it's hopefully the Liberal government within this, this sitting will look at further legalization or decriminalization, mm -hmm. building on what we learned from cannabis. Yeah, that's awesome. I yeah. love that answer. It was great. Uh, a couple more questions and we'll finish up. But um, what have you found worked best when you were working with people in the front line that helped yeah. them improve and um, heal in a, in a way, especially in their mental health aspect? Like, what yeah. do you think? Not all best, but yeah. yeah. It's all about relationships. Okay. It's all about, and that was a nice thing about harm reduction for us. So this was early 1990s and we're beginning to go out into people's homes and into the bars and strip clubs with needles and condoms in our backpacks and try to meet people. And, yeah. and uh, it was a pretty ex exciting time. You know, we were, we were treated really well by the community. Um, but I, I think that it, it's all about then you, you wanted to, you wanted people to come back. So your whole orientation wasn't to change or fix right. them. It was to build a relationship so they came back because you knew that if they didn't come back for clean needles, they would die. They could die of overdose or AIDS, which was really at that point not treatable. It wasn't even known as HIV when we started. So you were trying to prevent an epidemic. And so I think for me, the thing that I think street health is built around, and I think any healing is relationships. Um, so it's in the case of harm reduction or people working in, in these communities, it's about the relationship with the client community, trust, respect, a sense of belonging and togetherness. Yes. Um, because mm -hmm. you know, really it, it's hard often for, especially people, you know, when we have a lot of trauma, uh, sometimes the healing path is a long one. Right. So people can get frustrated. And right. I think if we're really stuck on like strict goals or abstinence, we're just gonna create shame for people. Right. So I think it, compassion, empathy, understanding relationships, all the great things about the, the highest virtues of, of humanity, really. That's it, it, what it comes down to is just being kind to people. Uh, compassion, yeah, for sure, empathy. Mental, mm -hmm. Empathy. Yeah. Yeah. And then, there, I mean, yeah, the reality is I think we judge, so, say you're walking down the street and you see someone who is not doing well and they're strung out on, on math or clearly, you know, struggling a little bit. Uh, I think most of us are, you know, we, our breath stops a little bit or our heart jumps because we realize that could be us. Right. We're wired as social beings from a young age with mirror neurons. And I think sometimes the defensiveness is when we see things like that, we push away and blame people as a defense mechanism. But the reality is we're just looking at a mirror and we all have that ability and we all have that pain and we all have that, that, that potential to heal as well. So I think that, and I think psychedelics, the funny thing about the healing potential of psychedelics is it also comes down to relationships because mm -hmm. psychedelics improve and alter your sense of relationship to the world you're in. You don't feel so separate or uh, abstracted from it or, or separated from others. You feel more connected in nature. Um, you have a larger sense of purpose in life. So it's that connectivity to others and to our place in the world and nature which is sorely needed in a time of climate change and, and you know, the destruction of our, our natural environment. So we've got a lot of healing to do. And I think the path is, is around um, understanding all of our relations. Awesome. And yeah. that's indigenous wisdom too, right? So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I totally agree with all of that. And um, I think 
you're just, you're spreading the right message for sure. And hopefully everyone can, um, you know, engage in the same practices there. Yep. So um, one last question and just going to yep. share a bit. Um, what practices do you think people should consider um, when consuming drugs and alcohol and specifically in the university demographic? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you asked. I mean, the reality is campuses and, and university uh, culture really is a distinct um, subculture to the larger society. And I think we need to recognize that. And I think part of, I had a little bit of trouble with some of the, the um, criticism of, of students or, or, or youth culture around some of the, the congregations at Queens and in terms of outdoor parties and people kind of roving through because I know that kind of hit the media and, and how dangerous these young people are outside. I think it was a, a profound misunderstanding of youth culture and, and the, both right. the upside and downside to that. But I do think that, you know, if you're generally speaking and there's all ages at universities, but if you look at, at the cohort that's say between 17 and, and 22, yeah. somewhere in there, yeah. um, often away from home for the first time, really yeah. finding their own sense of identity, exploring ideas, exploring, their own sense of selves, you know, sexually and or in relationships with others and all that kind of stuff. It's such a profound period in your life. And there's a lot of experimentation that goes on. There's an enormous amount of risk too. And we know the stats and, and you remember in class, we talk, we talk about date rape and rape culture and its relationship to alcohol. And Queens culture definitely has that, that old boys network around alcohol and parties. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that times have changed and that people have different perspectives, but I think we still understand that alcohol, um, while it helps with sociability, um, can also cause a lot of problems. You know, your risk for any kind of accidents or injuries or untoward events always rise with every drink you take. Mm -hmm. So we really need to look at cultures of creating safety so that when people do and youth people do want to party right. uh, or explore that we're doing it in conditions of safety and non-judgmentalism. So that's making sure that, you know, you're doing it in a, in a collectivity or community that supports you. Um, we need to address issues of, of masculine or toxic masculinity in particular yeah. the way alcohol exacerbates that. But safety, always having someone with you making yeah. sure you pace your alcohol, water with alcohol, food with alcohol, right. all of um, And I know cannabis, particularly since legalization has been a little more accessible and available. I think we have a lot of learning to do around what strains are right for you, when to use cannabis, how to avoid some of the anxiety and difficulty people get into. Um, and then the other thing, and I haven't, because I'm not teaching at Queens this semester, I haven't heard as much and I know it's all virtual anyways, but I know there were significant issues around cocaine uh, use at Queens. So I think we need to have conversations around what that signifies, you know, what is the meaning of cocaine for people when we say cocaine or talk about it, what is, what's the symbolism, what does it represent to people? Um, and it can be a status thing or it can be a risk behavior or it can be all sorts of other things. But as long as we're always decoding the meanings, then we understand what we're doing. So drug use is about information, knowing what you're doing, why you're doing it, being clear on your own motivations, and then being doing, taking a harm reduction approach where you're, you're looking at possible risks and you're minimizing those. So right. yeah, I think we know what some of those practices are with alcohol. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a great way to say it. And I think people also don't think about, like, I think the physical ones that you mentioned, like drinking water and eating people know about, but it's also yeah. like the social aspect yeah. of it. And um, we don't, consider it yeah. all the time but um that's definitely so important to consider when we're consuming it in yeah. university so thank you so much for all yeah. those um yeah, yeah 
tidbits, advice, and everything you were talking about. I think this is going to spark something in a lot of people, and uh, you sparked something in me. I'm super interested in it now, and um, yeah, thank you so much for meeting with me today, and uh, yeah. yeah.